Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in April of 2017 and is located just down the street from Lincoln Center in the Lincoln Square neighborhood of Manhattan. Our channel will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service, as well as encouraging stories and conversations with members of our LSQ church family. We hope you'll subscribe as a way to stay connected during this season of uncertainty and social distancing. Today's scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, and chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Grace. Uh, Bruce is right. Uh, I am bleary-eyed, and, and, uh, but it, it has less to do about the time change. My, uh, my, my family's uh, flights for, for spring break were—see, um, I'm, I'm already falling apart up here. Uh, they were canceled, so I was up all night trying to rebook flights because of all the crazy— you know, Nor'easter we had yesterday. So this is going to be a really interesting sermon for everybody today, for me too. Um, I'm interested in knowing what I'm going to say. Um, but before I begin, uh, I want to uh, really quickly just give you an update about our, um, about, uh, our giving here at Redeemer Lincoln Square. I'll, it's March, I know, and the, um, it takes, that, takes this long sometimes at, at churches our size to kind of finish out our balance sheet for 2021 and know how things ended, but they did end, and I want to give you that update. So um, first thing to tell you is this, is that if you go to page 13, details are there. I'm humbled and excited to tell you that last year, 2021, our giving needed to run this church was um, 2.9 million, but we actually, you all gave $3.34 million dollars. Which is, so, so yes, please, it, it feels awkward to say, celebrate that, but what you're, what you're celebrating there, what you're clapping about is, is individuals, you all, taking ownership to say, um, this is my church. And if you'll remember, um, a, a good portion of last year, we were really behind. Around October, I got up here and I was like, we're about half a million dollars behind what we need. And I was kind of freaking out, if I'm really, really honest with you. I was, I was kind of scared. And you all answered the call. You believed in the vision, and you said, all right, this is my home. And I think I'm incredibly humbled by that. 
If I could dance, I would dance up here. I can't dance, so I'll spare you that. We're not going to do that. But um, that's what came in. In regards to expenses last year, we tried to budget what we thought we were going to spend, but for various reasons, mostly because the pandemic took longer than we thought it was going to take, uh, we ended up spending a lot less. So uh, projections for how much we needed to pay for this space and for programming uh, didn't come through. So because of lower expenses and giving, um, we're actually a fairly new church, and we had zero kind of uh, reserves, which is risky for, again, a church like us. So now um, we have the recommended six months reserves so that we can pay our, you know, go through the fluctuations of every church, and that's pretty amazing as well. So that's last year. As far as going forward for 2022, our giving goal now is $3.6 million. And you say, wait a second, I can do math. That's a 24% increase. What's going on here? Well, we increased staff. It's all going to Bruce. Just kidding. Um, uh, <laughs> but we, we, we hired new people at our church. We now do have to pay for uh, the going rate for rent. Um, Ethical Culture and YMCA worked with us this, in 2021, um, but we're back to our regular uh, rents. We're, we, we didn't have midweek space for office space. Now we do. We're restarting our various ministry programs, and so um, the budget goes up. So I, I know that's a lot of information, but here's the gist, just the, the too long didn't read. Uh, to, um, thank you for your support last year. Thank you for doing that. We wouldn't be able to grow and be where we are now uh, to be a church that joyfully lives as reflections of God's love together in the city. And we just ask for you to continually prayerfully consider supporting us in 2022. We, we need our church. We need us to say, this is my home. And I, I know it, when, the, when the zeros look big, it's like, wow, that's a lot. Um, that's what it takes to be a church where we're at right here, to provide and serve you, to serve the city, to serve those around us. Um, and so I just pray, I, I pray for you to think about how this year you might want to be generous, not just financially, but serving, hosting, praying. What would it look like for us to do life here in the city? Um, you're not just physical bodies. We're missional individuals. And what, how are we going to live out our mission together? I, I just ask you to be thoughtful about that because I think we can do it together to bring God's love in the city. So if you have questions, you can ask me, you can email any of the folks in the bulletin, we will get back to you about uh, whatever you'd like. All right. Let's get to today's sermon now. And as you can tell, we are looking at uh, the book of Genesis. We're in Genesis chapter 3. And here's how I want to start with a question. What's wrong? <laughs> Every culture has to answer that question What's wrong? Every culture is trying to answer that question. And I think we're asking that question is because when we look out in the world, what do we see? War. We're seeing that every day right now. But it wasn't just today. War has been going on for a long time. We see hunger. We see poverty. We see sexism, racism, classism, all the isms. And we know then that's not the way it's supposed to be. And so everybody throws out a solution and says, I know what it is. What are some of the ones people throw out? Number one, the problem is, I hear this, they say the problem is social. It's, it's groups of people, the living a certain way, and we got to fi fix the social problem. Other people say, no, 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 I know the problem. It's individuals. Individuals are the problem. It's psychological. It's, it's, it's how we think about things. 
Other people say, they go, no, 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 it's economic. The problem is people are selfish, so we know, you know Karl Marx enters and says, hey, let's do the collective. But then other people say, no, 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 the problem is economic. We need free market enterprise. Adam Smith, hello, he's here. So it, it, notice, same problem, and now we start coming at different problems with different solutions. The biologist says, no, 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 the problem is chemical. It's the chemistry in the head. It's, it's the physical. We need to fix that. And I could go on, but I think you get the point. Everybody has a different narrative and story of what will fix us. And the reason why we've been going through the book of Genesis is it's our desire to say, hmm, what does this say about our space now? Because I would argue while everybody has these these glimpses and aspects, I think they're incomplete. I think the problem is, is more complex, and I would argue that the Bible says the same thing. Because the Bible roots all the problems in one three-letter word, sin. Now, before you tune me out, before the, you know, you start glazing over, oh, Michael used one of those religious mumbo-jumbo words— Let's unpack what the Bible actually means by that. Let's not just go on our assumptions of what you think you think what sin means. And let's see what the text says. Because I think what we find here, three things. The nature of sin, the effects of sin, and then the remedy of sin. In, here, in chapter 3, for the first time we're seeing, we've alluded to it for weeks. This is the moment. So, let's go through it. Number one, the nature and character of sin. As I already said, that word, word sin has so many connotations. Generally, at least in New York, when I hear people use that word, it's usually to, to heap a punishing word on somebody. Sinner. <laughs> you know, it's, it's something to like lob like a grenade, like, and then you throw it on somebody else. But the Bible is much more specific about its origin and where it comes from. So go to chapter 3, verse 1. It's in the middle of your page. And what you see there is the serpent shows up and says, he says, did God really say? It's a really interesting phrase. The first thing out of his mouth, he said to the woman, did God really say? And in that one little phrase, what's he doing? He's attacking verses 16 and 17. Remember what we said a couple weeks ago? That for relationship, we all have rules. You guys have already promised not to spit on me because that's a rule that if you did, I'm out of here. We're not hanging out anymore. Because that's a rule that we live by. You all live by, right now, you're not punching each other because there's a rule you're following. Thou shalt not punch thy neighbor while you're sitting here. Thank you. God had a rule. Just don't eat of this tree. Because you need a rule to enter a relationship with anybody else. And, say, and the serpent is coming in and saying, I'm going to give you a question so that you can actually agree or disagree on something that is a relational rule. Did God really say he's opening up a conversation? And his method is to misquote God. Look at the first thing he said. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree? Compare and contrast, guys. Look at what, what did God say in 16. You are free to eat from any tree, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge. So right away, he's, he's already expanding and making sound worse what actually God had said. So the first thing he does is he misquotes God. Did God really say? It's the first disinformation attack in the world happening right here. And, and then what ends up happening? You could see the progression. The woman replies, verse 2, well, we may eat 
fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it. Let's compare notes. Did God say do not touch it? Do not touch it. Nope, nope, he did not say that. So what's she doing? She's adding to the relational rule. So already you start, you're seeing her kind of, huh, I don't know if I really like this thing. I don't know. She's already sort of uh, doubting as well. Now, did, did the serpent do that? Did she do that? That's, that's one of those questions about uh, human responsibility and free agency, and the Bible's kind of quiet about. But the point is, she is, and she's questioning, did God really do that? And then the last thing that ser- the, save- the serpent does in verse 4, you will not certainly die. That's just a bald out faith. Look, look up at 16 and 17. You will surely die. That's just a complete straight non-truth. So between half-truths, stretching the truths, and flat out just non-truths, what does the serpent do? He's challenging God's existence. Nope. Actually, he's not. That's actually an interesting point. Did you know that the, the serpent doesn't start with, well, is there really even a God? The problem with American society do you know how many people believe in God in America? I think the numbers are still in the, above 80%. Americans believe in God. That's not the problem. The problem is that the, uh, what the serpent really goes after is not God's presence. It's his goodness. See, what he's attacking here, when he says, did he really say, does he really want you to thrive? Is he really in your favor? See, what's going on there is that when he knows if you start questioning God's goodness, you can no longer rest in his goodness. And if you can't rest in his goodness, which is the nature of God, then, then you're no longer in relationship with him. But another way, if you don't know someone's good and loving and kind, guess what? You're not going to stay in relationship with that individual. That's exactly what happens. Um, I don't know if you've, there's that old Spielberg movie, uh, Empire of the Sun. Um, where uh, a a young boy is taken captive. He's put in a concentration camp. And he had been grown up always trusting the adults in his life, the authorities in his life. And he's he's in this concentration camp, and the adults now around him will come to him and do things like this. They'll say, hey, boy, yeah, yeah. He's like, do you want a candy bar? And he's like, yes, please, I love a candy bar. And they're like, yeah, that's nice. And then we, we want one too, and they'd walk away. Just, just hurtful stuff like that. Hey, you want a candy bar? You want to come? Oh, yeah, I would, I would. That's nice. I think somewhere in that kind of, in that moment, in our heart of hearts, I think that's our biggest worry with God. We think that the offer of that candy bar is, is not real. The offer of that goodness is not going to be real to us, and he's not going to come through. And so here's the biblical concept of sin. Ready? You can't trust God, and because you can't, we have to take matters into our own hands to rule. And because we take matters into our own hands to rule, look at verse 6. They took and they ate. Because why do they take? They take because they weren't sure he was going to give. All sin can be traced back to this moment where we doubt God's goodness where we can't wait, where we take, and he doesn't give. I, and therefore, I have to get. And I would argue um, the rest of human life, for all of us, collectively and individually, 
is trying to live this out. And let me try to be very clear. You can do this religiously or irreligiously. You can do this as, a, as a, somebody who's pious and somebody who's not. Let me, I'll give you uh, a, a comparison that I heard once. Imagine one person goes to church, very religious, goes, comes here on Sundays and prays and lives a very moral life. And imagine somebody else, let's call him uh, his or her next door neighbor, is the opposite. Doesn't go to church. There is no rules, no expectations. If they met each other, they'd have, they would vote differently maybe. They would act differently, think differently. But what might be driving them both? The one who, do, who doesn't believe in God. And I've met some folks like this. They say, if you say, well, why don't you believe in God? You say, well, because if I did, I wouldn't be able to live as I see fit. I wouldn't be able to live my life um, as I want. I don't trust that he would let me be the person I want to be. And therefore, I can't do what I want, wherever I want, with whomever I want. And so I'm not, I, I, what's, what's that? I don't trust God's goodness. But think about the religious person. Why do a lot of folks go to church? I think deep down, at some level they think, I have to live a moral life. I have to be good. Because unless I do that, God's not going to give me what I want. That they think somewhere that I have to do this, or because if I don't, God's not going to accept me. Guess what's happening there? That's not trusting God's goodness either. And so this is actually profound. When people say, well, you guys are just goody-goody Christian, you go, you go to church, I would argue not, that doesn't mean that you don't have that, the same motivation. You could try to escape God's goodness by being religious. You can escape God's goodness by not being religious. Because Christ, the Christian definition of sin is taking anything and making that more important to God. Why are you doing that? Because you think that's going to be more good to you than he would. And so zoom out for a second. Look at, just start, try to analyze your own life. Why do we throw ourselves into our work? Why do we uh, get so concerned with being liked? Why are we heartbroken when things don't go the way we want? Yes, there's the surface level, like there's, it's valid to want these things, but there's, there's, it's proper space, and then there's that identity level where I can't get off the floor. And the reason why is because I've trusted something else more important than God's goodness. We believe the lie. And so sin is not moral failure. Please, whatever you hear, do not hear me say that. It's any human intuition that because we doubt God's goodness, we're no longer unified to him. And you say, okay, why does that matter? Look what comes out of it. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after our Sunday worship service. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastors and other members of our church community. If you have questions that you'd like to process, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us for our virtual worship service on YouTube every Sunday at 1030 a.m. Eastern. You can find our YouTube channel at lincolnsquare.redeemer.com slash YouTube. Number two, the effects of sin. I'll do this one briefly. If that's the nature of sin, the effects of sin are not, you know, oh, I do little bad things now. The effects of sin, go back through the things that other people say are what's wrong. The people who say, oh, the problem's psychological, go to page, go to verse 10. He said, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. By the way, 
Look again. Why is he afraid? Is he afraid because God's coming? No. It says, I was afraid because I was naked. He's afraid of himself. He's looking at himself and saying, ugh. There's a deep insecurity going on there. And so they try to contr- what they try to do is they try to control what other people see. The whole fig leaves thing and all that stuff. What's going on there is, I'm not sure that I can trust you, and so I need to cover. What's so fascinating about our culture today, we all want authenticity. We want people to be real. But there's a part of us that knows, I'm not sure I really want to be real or see your realness because we're not sure what, if they could handle what, what it would take for us to be that way. And I don't know if I want to handle what it's going to take for them because they're kind of messy too. And uh, Just keep it together. Keep those clothes on. Not just physically, but mentally, spiritually, emotionally. Stay, stay apart. What's that? That's psychological brokenness. By the way, those who say, well, it's social. What's the social version of this? That on a large scale. See, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 25, it says they were naked and unashamed. Now they're naked and ashamed. And What's going on there is you, you're not trust, when you don't trust God's goodness, you, now you no longer trust the goodness of others. And do we, should we? Are we sure that they're going to use and wield what they see for, about us right? I don't know. Shut it down. We no longer trust them. And you could actually make the argument, human history, the divisions, the wars, the fighting, is at the end of the day saying, I got to hold on to what I have. And there's the nation state version of it. There's the tribal version of it. There's the racial version of it. There's all kinds of group think versions of this, but it's the social breakdown starts here. How about physical breakdown? We're, it's not in our text. Bruce is going to talk about it next week, but the, the ground is literally broken now. So, so disease, cancer, physical damage somehow, and, I, and to be honest, it's a little mysterious to me, but it's rooted in the relational and psychological and um, all the other forms of breakdown that's happened here. How about uh, spiritual? I, I, I just want just last one. Spiritual breakdown. Go back to verse 6. In verse 6, it says that the, uh, they uh, took. By the way, this is the first time the word took, to take, shows up in Genesis. They took and ate. And a lot of the commentaries point out this is an a oppositional word here. You only take from somebody if you don't think they're going to give you something. And then, no, so there's already a, a, a us versus them mentality here, spiritually speaking, between them and God. But then look at verse 8. They're hiding. And I, again, I, I kept reading this over and over and over again to get this. But when they, they hide, why? God's going for a walk. And they don't want to be with him anymore. It's that simple. What's cool about New York, as you know, a lot of times we go for walks not because we just need to get from point A to point B, but, but to, hey, you call up a friend and say, let's go for a walk. It's a relational device that we use. And by the way, sometimes you hide from other people too. You ghost them. You know, I don't want to go and walk with you anymore. That's exactly what's happening here. So hiding here is a sign of not wanting to spend time. I don't care if you're religious or not religious, a Christian, not a Christian. Every single human on every single level exhibits these types of relational, social, psychological, spiritual, physical breakdowns. And so, in other words, it's complete. But here's the point. When you hear in society, the problem is we just need to educate people more. The answer is yes. But the solution isn't if we just educate people more, things will be fixed. The problem is the family unit. 
The problem is the economic system. The problem is, those are actually, here's what I get to say as a, because of this. I can say yes to all of that, and none of them is the complete answer. Because what you can see in history is when any society fixes one of those things, that's great. All of us, but you don't see utopia. There's still breakdown. There's still people fighting. All these things are still here. Because at the end of the day, culturally and individually, something other than God is at the root of our lives. And it's broken. And that's the problem. Um, in the Chronicles of Narnia, you have Eustace, right, with um, the voyage of the Don Treader. And he becomes a dragon. And he's trying to fix himself. What does he do? He, he, he tears into his own skin. He's trying to undragonfy himself. And he rips, uh, you know, that, that, that layer off. And it says in the text, it actually feels kind of good. When he finally gets off that, that naughty layer and he sees it on the ground, he feels better. But he looks back at himself, he's still a dragon. Because it's not, it's not going to be enough. Because our biggest problem, I would even argue the biggest problem is not even sin. It's the fact that we, won't even, we can't even recognize the root of what's killing us. And the reason that's a problem is you and I won't go looking for the solution until we even know there's a problem. And I would even argue even worse than that is we won't know what to look for as the solution. We don't know what's missing. And so before we move on, there's different ways to get at this. What do you daydream about? What do you, when you have the free time, what do you hope for and are hoping in? It could be a possession. It could be, some, it could be a physical entity. Maybe it's a relationship. Can I tell you, can I speak real with you? If you got that thing, you probably would be happier, by the way. Statistics show that when uh, there is a need and you get that need, it does help. My argument is it wouldn't be enough. Uh, there's something called, um, there's a psychological term that whenever you get what you thought you needed, there's a momentary, like, bump. You feel good. And then there's a new baseline and everything comes back because it's not going to be enough. Because that's not our main problem. Human, not Christian, not non-Christian, not religious, not irreligious, every human's problem at the end of the day is that we really don't think God loves us. We really don't think he's good. And only when you see that that's the problem will we actually start trying to address the problem. So last point. What's the remedy? What's the remedy? How do we fix this? Well, uh, church history professor John Gerstner put it wonderfully with an illustration. Here's the illustration. I heard this years ago. He said, this is a true story. In the 1930s, there was a, there was a young woman. She was in high school. She was intimately met with, the, with an experience with Jesus and said, you know what? I'm going to give my life to Jesus, and I'm going to go be a missionary. And where she wanted to go, the, the part of the world that she wanted to go to back in the 1930s, that part of the world wouldn't let her in unless she was married. She needed a husband. And so she said, she started planning out her life. She goes, I'm going to go to Bible college. I'm going to go to seminary. I'm going to get the training that I need to, to do cross-cultural relationships. I'm going to get all the categories and all the concepts. But I also need to be married. So he pr- she prayed. She says, Lord, I'm going to give my life to you. I don't need comfort. My parents have rejected me. My friends have. But I'm going to live for you. I need nothing else. I'm going to be a missionary. 
I just need a husband. And so she goes to Bible college, and she goes to seminary, and year after year after year, no boyfriend. Next year, boyfriend. Disaster ends. Next year, no relationship, no fiance, no husband. And what ends up happening is she gets to the very end of her training. She's ready to go. It's the night of her graduation. She's sitting in her room, and she's angry. She can't even, she can't get, get up and go to graduation. She's fuming. And the reason why is she says, I, it's, she says, she actually writes about this. I can't believe, God, you would have done this to me. How dare you? I've devoted my whole life to you. The one thing I asked for was so that I could actually serve you. And you didn't give that to me. How could you? And she actually writes in her, her autobiography, she, she says, it, it was somewhere in there, in a moment, it hit her like a lightning bolt. She couldn't believe it. That she actually hadn't. She thought she was mad because she gave everything to God, but she actually hadn't, had she? That she still had a condition. It was if. I will do this. I will serve you if you gave me a husband. Which means there, if that, there's a condition there. Whatever's on the other side of if, that's what you really are serving because you still don't think God's going to be good unless you could have that thing. That she had this idea of what she thought she needed to have. Hello, Adam and Eve. And therefore, what was she doing? She hadn't actually trusted God's goodness. She had conditions. And so what happened is that night, that very night, she had been a Christian for years. And she said, you know what, God? I placed my life in your life. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my hands off. I'm going to let you direct. And I started, and when I read about this, I said, oh my gosh. If she was a Christian for years and, and had served and trusted God, but hadn't realized this, that she never had, what about you and me? Right? And, um, of course, the next thing I thought was, well, what happened? I started looking through the text. I was like, what, what, you know, what happened to her? Did she get a husband? Did she not get a husband? You know what? Gershwin never tells us, which is, I think, kind of the point. Because it doesn't matter if she gets the husband or not. Because you and I won't get peace until we love God for who he is alone. And if we did, guess what would happen? Anything and everything else that ever happened to us, we would be able to handle. That God's profound love and care in that moment would mean that we could go anywhere and handle anything. Come what may, whatever it would be, if we really did. And that's the problem, because we don't. And so here's the last question. Where might we go to be able to experience that love? Where might we actually finally see it? If we're not actually seeing it all day in and day out in our everyday lives. I think Mary was, um, in John chapter 20, she was trying to go to uh, the tomb of Jesus, and she was going to be religious, and she was going to, you know, bring some perfume and sense and, and think about this man who really affected her life. And she runs into the resurrected Jesus, but doesn't know that it's him. And the reason why is the text tells us in John 20, she didn't recognize him. In other words, and that's actually, I was thinking about this. That means whatever she saw at some level didn't remind her of what she thought he used to look like. What did it say in the text that he looked like? It said that he looked like a gardener. And I started thinking about this. I was like, well, you know, Adam was a gardener, wasn't he? That was his, that was his um, occupation. That was his goal. That was what he was supposed to do. Somehow then, Jesus raised from the dead 
He didn't look like a king, even though he was a king. He didn't look like a priest, even though he was a priest. He looked like a gardener. He was the better gardener. He was the better Adam. See, the first Adam was placed in a garden and told, Obey me, and you'll live. Jesus was in a garden too, wasn't he? Garden of Gethsemane. And he was told, Obey me, and you would die. I was thinking about this this week. Which one's harder? You know, I think it's hard, right? Adam was tempted, but he could have resisted. But I think that's nothing compared to the temptation Jesus had to go through. The Garden of Gethsemane. For Adam and Eve to save the human race, all they had to do was obey and everybody would live. But for Jesus to save the human race, for them to live, he had to die. And he wouldn't just die, he would lose the experience of God that he's always had in his life. In other words, when, if, if he had cried to God to be saved from death, I'm 100% positive because of his relationship with God that he still had, God would have saved him and we would have been lost. And so is it any wonder that when Jesus on the cross said, thy will be done, you know why he had to say that? He had to say that because our natural intuition is always my will be done. And he had to counteract that. And it canceled it out. Because he was cast out so that we could be brought in. This is page three of the Bible, friends. You know what that means? The whole rest of the Bible, all the way through Jesus and beyond, is essentially trying to tell you that God never stopped wanting to walk with you in the Garden of Delight. He always wanted to get back to that. He always wanted to say, I want you to come back for you, to love you, to be with you. And we most see that in Jesus' life and how he lived. And so therefore, why are we doubting his goodness? Why are we doubting his love? You know those viral videos where those kids, they, they sit in the office and, the, and their, their parents are wrestling down and they're, they're, they're at the doctor's office and they, they're like, this, these people do not have my best interest in mind. And they're just trying to get away from it. And the parents are, and the doctor's trying to put the glasses on the kid or put the, the hearing aids in. And they want nothing to do with it. And yet when that, you see these videos, but the moment they open their eyes, the moment they open their ears and they see or hear reality as it really is, it's, it, it, their, everything in them changes. That's mommy. That's daddy. Because they see reality. Come see reality. Put on the glasses of his love. Stop believing the lie. Stop thinking that he's trying to wrestle you. You think to kill you, but really to save you. He took his hands off his life out of love for you. Can you now take your hands off your life out of love for him? See, I think I'm ready, but if I know that people over and over time thought they were really trusting, but they really hadn't, I keep looking, I'm going, where am I not? Give that part up. Trust in him. And I think the answer that, the reason why you can is because you see who Jesus is, and you say, I, can, I, I, I might, the ethereal God, I don't really understand, but I see Jesus. I understand that. You and I will never come to him if we just sit here and try to tell ourselves, and look in the mirror, love Jesus, love Jesus, love Jesus. That will never happen. The only way you'll keep your heart from investing in the wrong things is if you see him, see the gardener, see the true Adam and Savior. There is no darkness that's too black. There is no the deep, too deep for him to cover. It'll help you keep from turning good things into ultimate things.
and remind you that suffering, that is here. We have suffering. It is here today, but it will be gone tomorrow. That our beauty is not out there. We're not, we shouldn't be searching for that. The beauty is here with him. And there's healing at the end. And it will fill you with eager hope and expectations of the future. Friends, are you looking? Are you coming to scripture and saying, well, let me see. Are you coming in prayer? Are you coming with each other? As Bruce said earlier, looking at each other, images of God to see glimpses of him. You have nothing to lose and everything to gain. When he finally gave up his life and Jesus died, when we give our lives up, we become more alive. And I think that's what's going to heal the world. Are we ready to start? Are we ready to do that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I feel like I was going a million miles an hour because there's, it's so all-encompassing to see the root of all the fracturing, of all the brokenness, Father. It starts here. I pray that we would no longer doubt you. We, we actually are just doing the same sin over and over and over again. Placing the wrong things above you. These are good things usually. Family, comfort, love, beauty. Help us to place it in the proper place behind you, who's the author and perfecter of our faith. How do we know we can trust you? Through your life and death, through your deeds and care. I pray that we would sit with that, Father. Facing in your name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to our church podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our channel if you haven't already, and we invite you to check out our website to learn more about our church and how to get connected to our family. Just visit lincolnsquare.redeemer.com.